This morning, we're going to talk about future hope and to look at future hope and what God has in store for the people of God and how that influences and impacts the way we live today. We're going to look at Micah chapter 4 verses 1 through 8 as we continue our series through the Bible and continue um, our time looking at the minor prophets. We're introduced to this prophet, this minor prophet by the name of Micah. The book of Micah is actually found prior to Habakkuk in your Bibles, and Micah is actually describing a time in the life of the nation of Israel that actually happened before Habakkuk. Habakkuk was written somewhere between 600 and 650 BC, and Micah was written somewhere between 700 and 750 BC. He preached a message prior to the Babylonian exile, and all throughout Micah 1, 2, and 3, he's telling a very sobering story of the inevitable judgment for the people of God. Micah was a prophet from the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah. Remember, we've established the last few weeks that there was a northern kingdom, which capital was Samaria, and a southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, which its capital was Jerusalem. But in Micah chapter 3, the first 12, the very end of that chapter, it ends with the reminder that Jerusalem, the city of God, will be utterly destroyed. But thanks be to God that that is not how the story ends. Because we turn our attention to Micah 4, and God uses Micah, and this chapter in particular, to give the people of God hope, even in the midst of inevitable judgment. To give them hope, hope for tomorrow, a glorious future that would impact the way they live today. Micah chapter 4 the prophet declaring this word to a people that are, have their lives turned upside down, a people who are restless. Micah chapter 4 verses 1 through 8. This is the word of the Lord. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge people, judge between many peoples, and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. From the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken, for all the peoples walk in the name of its God. But we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away. And those whom I've afflicted and the lame I will make the remnant and those who are cast off a strong nation and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. Verse 8, and you, O tower of the flock, the hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come, the former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. And on this Lord's day, the grass 
withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord, it stands forever. Amen. Jack Nicholson in his Academy Award winning role walks into the waiting room and asks, what if this is as good as it gets? I'm sure at some point in your life and maybe even today, you've asked the question, what if this is as good as it gets? You see, our current circumstances many times lead us to believe that what is happening today defines my life both now and forever. My current circumstances define not only my reality, but we buy the lie that our current circumstances define our future. But it's here in Micah chapter 4, after hearing that Jerusalem is about to be destroyed, that they are given a promise and a picture of their future. And it is the picture of this future hope that we just read about in Micah chapter 4 that dramatically impacts the way the people of God would live today. And it is my prayer for the next few moments that we have together that it's the picture of God's glorious future for his children that would radically impact the way you live today. What can we learn about this future hope and this glorious promise of tomorrow from Micah chapter 4? The first is this. God gives us a very clear vision of future hope. He has not left his children in despair. He has not left his children without a template. What will this future hope look like that informs the way I live today? Well, in verses 1 through 4, Micah outlines what this future hope looks like, this glorious picture of the future, this glorious picture of tomorrow. And bear with me, I want to point out a few things in verses 1, 2, 3, and 4 that really help us understand the power and gravity of the future. Well, the first thing is this, in verses 1 and 2, we see God finally getting his, getting his rightful praise and getting his rightful honor as the King of kings and Lord of lords. In verses 1 and 2, it says, in those latter days, God will be exalted. God will be worshipped. And it says that he will be worshipped and exalted as the king. Where? On the hill. On the highest of mountains. What is significant about the mountain? We talked about this briefly last week in Habakkuk chapter 3. The ancients believed that it was on top of the mountain that you could meet God. That it was on top of the mountain that you could experience heaven on earth. And so every religion, regardless of the philosophy or worldview of the day, every world religion, you could find a temple at the highest point of that region because that's where they believed they were meeting with their God, that they would meet and worship their idols. They would experience the presence and the favor of their God. The temple was what? The temple was the house of the Lord. It says in verse 2, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, the house of the God of Jacob. So Micah is giving us a vision of the future where one day all the nations of the world, Jew and Gentile, will one day come and exalt Yahweh as the true king and they will worship on the highest hill. What's Micah telling us? 
that there is a day coming in the future where this hill, where Yahweh is worshipped, will be higher than any other hill to send a message to the world that only Yahweh is the true and living God, that all other gods and all other idols are false competitors. Micah is telling us a day is coming in the future where it will be revealed to all the nations that our God, the Lord God, is the true and only King of kings and Lord of lords, and everyone else is a false competitor. He will be exhausted at the highest point. And look what else says will happen at the second half of verse 2. That he will do what? He will teach us his ways. We will walk in his paths. It tells us the promise that one day the word of the Lord will reign supreme. That the world will no longer buy the, the lies of our culture and the lies of our world. But there is a day coming where everyone will recognize that there is only one truth. That there is a source of absolute truth which will guide all of the people from many nations all around the world, that his word and his law and his ways will be preeminent throughout all of the earth. And what will be the effects? Verse 3, all disputes and all wars will cease. Violence will come to an end, not through the means of this world, but through the means of the very word of God and God being exalted on top of the hill on that day. Violence will come to an end and wars will come to an end and nations raging against one another will cease. And what will be the sign? It says in verse 3 that the weapons of war, the spear and the sword will be transformed into tools for farming and agriculture. Sword and spear will be transformed into plowshares and pruning hooks the tools and the instruments for farming were signs of, of peaceful times, times where we didn't study war no more, as the choir just sang, that the instruments, that the steel and metal, metal industry will no longer be producing weapons of violence and weapons of war, but they will be transformed into instruments and tools of peace. And then lastly, in this vision, verse 4, we're told that everyone would have their own vine, everyone would sit under their own tree, that there would no longer be the haves and the have-nots, that everyone would have exactly what they need according to God who freely provides for his people. And because of that, there would be the absence of fear. And they would sit, they would sit in a posture of contentment no longer would they be running and scrambling out of fear to acquire for themselves what they think the world can offer but never fully deliver. They will finally find their contentment in the God who provides everything they need and they will be content and they will be satisfied. What a glorious picture. What an optimistic view of the future. Do you understand in just four short verses, how the future 
dramatically defines and reorients us to how we live for today, that a day is coming where God will be making all things new, restoring that which is broken, and providing everything we need as he reigns supreme on his holy hill. Thanks be to God that he does not leave us in despair in Micah chapter 3 verse 12. He does not leave us with a message of destruction and devastation, but he leaves his children with a template and a glorious vision and future hope that defines our reality today. But the second thing I want us to see in this passage is that God not only gives us a vision of future hope, but he actually gives us a timing. The question of the day is when? Lord Jesus, come quickly, right? We've all been crying lately, haven't we? Lord, when are you coming? When is this glorious future, this promise of future hope going to happen? Well, Micah chapter 4 gives us a few clues In verse 1, it says, it will come to pass in these latter days. In these, maybe some translations say, in these last days. Now, some people, particularly in the church, believe the last days, especially if you've read a lot of Tim LaHaye books, that the last days are far away, right? We've seen too many movies and read too many books about the latter days or the last days. But we actually believe that the last days began at the first advent of Christ. We actually believe that the latter days, that the last days actually began when Jesus came to the world and came to this earth 2,000 years ago. You said, what? I thought it was far, far away, right? The pictures of Armageddon, the Tim LaHaye books, the Left Behind series. I thought that was the last days. Well, let's look at the scriptures together. Hebrews chapter one, verses one and two. The author of Hebrews announces, In the former days, how did God speak? God spoke to us through the prophets. But in these latter days, or these last days, he has now spoken to us through his son. Jesus, when he went from town to town, what did he preach? He preached and declared the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus, time and time again, said, The kingdom of God is at hand. I preach the message of the kingdom of God. This was the message of Jesus, that the kingdom of God has arrived, that the kingdom of God is at hand. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We believe that 2,000 years ago, the king has arrived because in verse 8 of chapter 4, it says that one day it shall come, that the former dominion shall come and kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem, that you will know you are in the latter days when the kingdom is reestablished, when the kingdom is inaugurated on earth as it is in heaven. We are in the latter days and it began 2,000 years ago. We have every right to ask, then why is this world still so screwed up if the king has come? Well, we live in what theologians have always called the already but not yet. We're caught in the in-between. You see, Jesus, and you've heard me say it time and time again, that Jesus came and he saves us and he does not take us immediately into heaven. But the reason that you and I exist and are on earth is to announce to the world that the last days are here. 
and that the kingdom of God is at hand. And it is our job to reach into the future and to bring heaven to earth wherever we are found. This is the calling of the people of God. We are here because there is still work to be done. We serve sacrificially and selflessly because the king has called us. This is our calling and this is our mission to announce that the king has come. He has inaugurated his kingdom, but it has not yet been consummated. And God uses us, the people of God, the church, to bring about the fullness of the kingdom. And one day it will be fully consummated and fully restored. So if this is all true, that God gives us through Micah this glorious picture of future hope, if it's true that Jesus has inaugurated his kingdom and we are called to live our lives on earth in light of the king arriving, then what's our response? Do we just go out to brunch afterwards? Do we just go about our day and watch football this afternoon? What in the world, how in the world would the people of God respond if this message is true? Lastly, how do we live in light of this future hope? Listen to me. If this is true, we live in light of this future hope by understanding our calling and our role. What is our calling and our mission? If Jesus came 2,000 years ago, listen to me, and established his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, it is as if Jesus hung a banner and it says, under new management, that this is my father's world and we are to live every day as the remnant of the king, pointing people to that sign, saying, this is my father's world, and it is under new management. And we seek transformation of this world, not according to the ways of this world, but according to the ways of God. Look at what it says once again in verse 2. How will the restoration of this world happen? How will this future hope be realized? Not through the methods of this world and of this culture as we talked about a few weeks ago in Amos chapter 8 and Amos chapter 9, but the reconciliation of this world and the restoration of this broken world will happen through the people of God being faithful to the word of God. It is the word of God alone. We have the truth in order to bring about restoration and to bring about this future hope. We don't have to rely on the methods of this world and of society and of culture. We have the very word of God on our side to be able to go out into the world to announce that God is making all things new. I want to ask yourself this question. I want you to ask yourself this question. How this week, I don't care whether you're in school on your sports team, in your work, in your neighborhood, in your family, how practically am I this week going to live in the reality that this world is under new management? How am I going to live practically this week to declare and demonstrate to the world that it is under new management? I want to ask you this question this morning. How in the world would we ever find the power and the motivation today to live in light of this truth, to live in light of this future hope? Well, the only way that you and I can answer the call this morning 
and be motivated and empowered to live in light of this future hope is if you yourself have experienced the power of this king, this king Jesus who 2,000 years ago did not come by power or by force, but came in humility, full of grace and full of truth. You see, we're told in the Bible, we're told in Micah chapter 4, that this king would be exalted on the mountain, that he would be exalted above all other kings. And it would be in John chapter 12, where Jesus would declare that I am this king that you have been waiting for. Jesus declares that the Son of Man will be exalted above all others and that all men will be drawn to himself. The nations are drawn to this king. The nations are drawn to this Jesus because there would never be a king and there will never be a king like Jesus. This Jesus who did not use the weapons of war against us but took on the weapons of war against himself. This Jesus, this king, who took the weapon of the cross on himself and fought on our behalf, our greatest enemy, the enemy of sin. Jesus took the sword. Jesus took the spear. And it is only and through the power of the cross of Jesus Christ that we would be motivated to answer the call of the king this day, to live our lives in light of this glorious future hope. There are two people, two people that I am speaking to this morning, or maybe listening online. The first group of people are the people that will totally dismiss this message. And they will say, I am ignoring the call. I'm ignoring the message concerning this God. And I am choosing this day to live indifferent to God and his word. And I just want to make it very clear what you are choosing this day. You are resigning in your life to living a life as if there is no God. And therefore, there is no purpose. And there is no meaning. And there is no bright tomorrow. And there is no future hope. Just as long as you know what you're choosing. But there's another group of people that I'm speaking to this morning that are weary and heavy laden and are tired of the reality and the lie that their present circumstances define their future, that their present circumstances and present reality define who they are. And today is the day where they say no I will not be defined by my current circumstances or my present reality, but I will forever be defined by a future promise, a future hope, a bright tomorrow. And Jesus makes it so clear, whoever believes in him, that God gives them the right to be called a child of God, and forever your today and your tomorrow will be defined by this future hope. This is the promise. Whoever confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised them from the dead, they will be saved. Run to Jesus and fall on Jesus as your only hope, your hope found at the cross. How in the world could any of us live another day 
A life full of broken promises, a life full of unmet expectations, a life full of disappointments, a life of continual trials and anxieties. How could you ever live another day without this future hope? Recently read and came across a New York Times article, an article that was written on the work of evangelicals through, throughout the world. And if you know anything about the New York Times, they're not particularly friendly to Christianity or evangelicals. And this writer, this journalist, Nicholas Kristof, who was an ardent atheist, tried his best to, to, to write about evangelicals' work throughout the world. And about halfway through, you wonder where this article is going because he, it seems like it's impossible for him to say anything nice. He talks about how narrow-minded evangelicals are and how backwards their ideology is. But, but finally, he gets to the original purpose of the article. And he says, but in light of all that, I've taken notice of these evangelicals and I can't dismiss them anymore because everywhere I go in the world, they're there. When I go to the Sudan, they're there fighting slavery. When I go to West Africa, they're the ones already there raising money for AIDS funding. When I go to the Philippines to support funding for the Feed the Hungry programs, every other group has left because of guerrilla fighting. But not the evangelicals. They're still there. The evangelicals are there and they're everywhere. And even the most ardent unbelievers should sit up and take notice. Listen to me. This is why the nations are drawn. This is why men and women are drawn to this God by the message of hope that we declare and demonstrate to a lost and broken world. And if there was ever a time where our world and our community needed hope, it is today, it is now, the people that have future hope reaching into the future and pulling heaven down to earth wherever you might be placed and wherever you might be found. After all, who else, who else can reach into the future and bring heaven down into the present? Robert Louis Stevenson was the great 19th century Scottish novelist, and he recalls a time where in his early childhood, he would look outside his bedroom door or bedroom window every night, and he would look for the lamplighters. If you don't remember the lamplighters, if you've ever seen the movie Mary Poppins, the, the men that come with their ladders at night and they climb up and they light every lamp in the midst of the darkness. And one night in particular, he was fascinated looking out of his bedroom window as a boy, looking at the lamplighters. And finally, his mom said, Robert, what are you looking at? And he says, Mom, look at the lamplighters. Look at those men. They're punching holes in the darkness. Brothers and sisters, I cannot think of a better image of what the church of Jesus Christ has been called to do punching holes in the darkness. This is our calling. This is our mission, to bring the hope of the future into the brokenness of the present. So why don't we start this week, maybe even today, wherever God places you and wherever you might be found, let's hang up a sign that says, under new management, 
and let's go punch holes in the darkness.